Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for July 9th, 2020, the Ministerial Exception Edition. I am David Plotz of Business Insider. I'm in Vermont, New England, not in Washington, D.C. I'm out of the hidey hole. I'm in a airy, airy upstairs room in Vermont, which is a blessed relief, although still really sweaty. Joining me from New Haven, also in New England, from her office is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily. Hello. I just want to make it clear it is my home office in which I perch because I don't think I'm really allowed into my law school office and I don't want to seem like I am breaking the rules. And never a rule breaker. Emily Bazelon is not a rule breaker. Not in that regard in particular. She's very dutiful towards the public health demands made by the authorities of Connecticut. And John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes, who is probably also in New England. I think he's in Connecticut. Hello, John. Finally you guys made it have out migrated in my direction. I like right. it. Right. Yeah, yeah. And it's good you're not on the Connecticut shoreline because two million pounds of sewage dumped from the Mill River into the Long Island Sound right off of Branford, Connecticut, and the beaches are closed. As if there weren't enough things, bad things happening in the world. That, uh, that seems like a good reason to close beaches. Although, really, two, two million pounds of sewage in the grand scheme of the ocean doesn't seem like very much. It feels like that Three will Three days of closed and, beaches for two million pounds of raw sewage. I think that's the trade. 667,000 pounds a day. All right. On today's GabFest, the very strange unfolding of this presidential campaign. We have President Trump's grievance politics. We have his attempts to hold rallies still. He's going to have one in New Hampshire. We have a raging pandemic. We have a fight over voting, who gets to vote. And then we have Joe Biden, who I hear tell is the Democratic nominee for president. But who could say? Who's seen him? Haven't seen him. We will talk about the absent presidential candidacy of Joe Biden and whether that's a great strategy to be absent. Then the Supreme Court wraps up really consequential term with huge rulings around religious organizations and what religious organizations do and don't have to do, unlike the rest of us, as well as on President Trump's tax returns. And then Hamilton, the musical, returned to the public eye and the public consciousness this past week as it streamed on Disney Plus in a sadder, grimmer time than when, than when it first appeared. What does it feel like to see this Obama musical in a Trump world, what does it mean? What? How do we read this incredibly important cultural document differently four years on from its original uh, descendants in the world? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. The state of the presidential campaign, John Dickerson, is pretty strange. Joe Biden is very invisible relative to other presidential candidates in the past, he has, there's no serious plan for a Democratic convention. Trump has also embarked on a very bizarre 
campaign. He is clearly frustrated by his inability to do these huge rallies that he loves, although he's going to attempt to have one in New Hampshire this week. He has decided to invest a significant amount of time and energy in the politics of statues and racial grievance. He spent the week of July 4th in vain against statue pullers, downers, and defending the Confederate flag of all things, at least implicitly defending the Confederate flag. And he's completely given up on fighting the pandemic, even as it scorches through the country. So, John, what just like we're, we're we are now four months out from Election Day, what do you make of this super weird presidential campaign generally? Just start with a general view of it. It's hard to know what's weird because we're in the middle of a pandemic and what's weird because we've got a one of the most idiosyncratic rule-breaking presidents um, ever who is, is uh, hard to predict on his own terms. But then we are all uh, feeling the hangover to some extent of the the predictions and, and measurements of 2016, which were based on a certain ways, you know, expectations about the way the ball would bounce and the ball didn't bounce that way. So you kind of have three different things you have to um, to look at. The most predictable, and yet this is a surprise to me a little bit, is the president's behavior. I mean, he's just mashing the same button. Um, and um, And so... In a sense, he's playing exactly to form, um, uncoachable uh, by his aides, um, and running right and running in like to the to the deepest core of his base, regardless of the current challenges he faces, which is that he's shedding voters who are making an ultimate conclusion about his ability to handle the job he has. So that's the thing that actually seems the most normal. And yet it doesn't seem electorally wise. Emily, going to that point of Trump's consistency, I don't know if you saw the piece by Jamel Bowie, our occasional GabFest uh, guest host and former colleague, the New York Times columnist. Jamel has a column in the New York Times in which he talks about the racial grievance politics and theatrical populism, the sort that Trump is practicing today. And made the case that kind of racial grievance politics work in American politics, but they work when things aren't serious. And right now, it does feel that people may be hungry, or enough people may be hungry for just dreary competence. And people are exhausted, and they're scared, and they're frustrated, and they just want something calm and reasonable. And And Jamel had this interesting callback to the Sarah Palin, who is the proto-Trump of the, the 2008 campaign, and how she eventually became a liability during 2008, which was a crisis campaign. And if anything, we have a much more of a crisis, and and Trump has a record that is much deeper than Palin's of, of incompetence. So do you do you think that, that the this kind of grievance politics is mistimed for the moment in the way Jamel predict? Yeah, I do. I mean, what's dreary about competence right now? Competence seems like some bright shining star that we could reach for forever and never achieve. And the way in which the pandemic is so grimly plodding on in America and and changing for the better in other countries, particularly in Europe, that we compare ourselves to. Um, Angela Merkel said this interesting thing yesterday that the pandemics had shown the limit of fact-denying populism. And she can say that in Germany because things are on the mend. And I think the German people with much more consensus embraced the science of wearing masks and of preventing spread. And in America, it's not clear that we've reached that limit. But I think the polls suggest that 
people want to reach that limit. And I imagine, I mean, maybe I'm just talking about my own sense of desperation here, but as parents look forward to the fall and the school plans have started look, to come look out. Look forward. I think you mean look forward <laughs> look only ahead. in the looking, yes, in the direction, not in anticipation. Yes, uh, I did mean it in precise that way. I mean, you know, school plans are starting to come out around the country. Many of them are a couple of days a week or for some but not all hours with like you know, just a lot of worry about what it's all going to look like. And then you have Trump coming out and blasting the schools and saying he's going to take away their federal funding rather than offering them anything to help. I mean, that and then also at a moment where there's a lot of uncertainty and people are feeling afraid of um, what opening schools will do in terms of the, the virus. To say that, you know, to blast his own CDC guidelines and then basically the CDC says, okay, well, we'll weaken them. Like, that is not confidence-inspiring. And all of these things are such a disruption to normal life, like for everybody, in this way that I think often in American life we have costs borne so much by poor people or people who are disadvantaged in some way, they have a medical emergency. Now it's like kind of among us, the American public, and to see the election as like a release from that and then watch the person who's supposed to be in charge, you know, yelling about the Confederate flag instead of like getting us all on the same page to, to address the coronavirus. It's it's pretty bizarre, I think. I think, yeah, you go back to the central question of priorities. What is the most important thing in America right now? What are the top 52 things? What are the top 138? And where is the Confederate flag defending the honor of the Confederate flag on that list? And then secondly, two of the biggest challenges that are being faced right now, which is the shortage of PPEs and the overloading of hospitals as a result of the spike in cases and the school reopening question are totally and thoroughly predictable. You can try to claim that the pandemic uh, was a, uh, an event that it was um, a super big surprise, even though the federal government for the last three administrations has been preparing for just that thing. It is indefensible that you don't have a plan for these two things, which is the rise in cases and the pressure it would put on the system and then the reopening of schools. And yet there isn't a federal plan other than the president's um just kind of forcing. And it seems to me that when you talk about competence, what you're talking about is not only who can handle the current situation, but whatever happens next. And, you know, whatever the next challenge is for the next president, it just seems to me that that Biden could argue basically whatever the next challenge is, Donald Trump will either be creating it or not preparing for it. And that given that it's the job of the president to manage big challenges, that that is a that this is a huge not only um, referendum on him in the moment, but also whatever he may face in the next four years. And also maybe people are just tired of having to think about this all the time. Like it's in our face. It's like exhausting. And maybe also back to Jamel's point that grievance politics works better when there's less on the line. Like it's it, it, it wears when you're actually worried about stuff and the entertainment value, I think, goes way down. Right. That that is certainly true. The entertainment value, the, the 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 pleasure that people took in the 2016 campaign, and going back to a, a favorite hobby horse of mine, getting to ride on it, and the 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 malicious glee that people had in aligning with Trump. I don't think there's even among his supporters. There's this, certainly there's loyalty, and he has a hardcore of supporters, but there's no pleasure in American life right now. If you look at the numbers on the people who think we're going in the right direction, wrong direction, I mean, it's just shocking. And even Republicans have just completely lost 
their mojo around this. And, and I think people are just, they're enervated. I want to, but with that innervation, actually, I want to change the subject slightly, Emily, which is to go to, uh, there's no doubt that President Trump, if you poll, is well behind Joe Biden. There are all these issues around the election itself, however, which make it possible that President Trump will win re-election or that there will be a, a, a highly contested election. And the president has been attempting to sort of throw chaff every place he can, and particularly now around mail-in voting, um, where he's attempting to sort of depict all mail balloting as as illegitimate and rife with fraud, which is completely false. It is the opposite. You've been following this issue really closely on the on the kind of mechanics of voting and the legitimacy of the November vote. Do you think that Trump is getting anywhere in such a way that the even if we have the election, that the, it may just it may be soured or poisoned and people may not trust it? I think we don't know the answer yet. Um, I mean, there are two parts of this. One is the political throwing up chaff part. And one is just like, a different kind of basic competence, which are local and state election officials getting ready for this election in a way that will enfranchise people. So we are starting to see applications for mail-in ballots go out in a bunch of states. I just got one. Like in Connecticut, you check the box for COVID, you get your mail-in ballot. And Connecticut is usually a state where you have to have a l- excuse like actual illness or travel to get an absentee ballot and are governor did away with that. And other states are doing that as well, but not everywhere. So people in Texas are not going to be able to say that fear of COVID is the reason that they need a mail-in ballot. And um, Alabama, I think that is also the case. And I also think even Governor Sununu in New Hampshire hasn't made a decision. I should also make clear, because sometimes I mess this up, that I'm talking about applications for mail-in ballots, not the ballots themselves, which is a significant distinction. Another interesting development in the last couple of weeks have been that in states where the state is not sending out the applications, certain counties have decided to do that. We saw in Iowa this week, in Polk County, the county made a decision to send every registered voter an application for an absentee ballot for November. They're going ahead where the state is not doing that, you know, presumably because of President Trump's opposition to mail-in balloting. The governor has signed a law saying that they can't do a big applications for ballots mailing without special approval from um, a panel of legislators. So you see here a potential advantage for counties that are Democratic strongholds um, if they mail all these applications to their voters, they may see their voters vote in greater numbers than other parts of the state um, dominated by Republicans. The other possibility about all the chaff, though, is that this isn't really about administering the election. It's about the aftermath, finding a way to sow distrust, kind of no matter what the result is, like to have confusion, to say it's illegitimate. And I think this just comes down to whether the election's close or not. If it's not close, it's going to be really hard for... Uh, Trump, I think, to really like do shenanigans, you know, whatever sort of legal um, challenges you can throw at the result. If it's close, though, he's going to have laid all the groundwork for that. One thing I would add uh, to that to keep an eye on is how Republicans in Congress behave in the House and the Senate um, relative to this question of the sanctity of the election. Do they do they embrace the Trump line? Do they stick to it? Or do they, uh, for their own local reasons, um, um, care about the, the voting in their states in a different way? But that leads to a bigger question, which is, 
you know, when I talked about the president mashing on the same button, what I meant was, you know, demonizing the other as a way to rally his base and try to sow confusion or at least lower turnout in the Democratic base. He tried to do this in 2018 with the caravan and the and the MS-13 and scare everybody about um, how Democrats were going to make um, the world unsafe. And he lost 41 seats in his party. So it failed miserably in 2018. And I think what's interesting about that is now a presidential year is different than an off year. But all the Republicans running in uh, House districts have to make a, d- a decision about whether embracing the president's brand of politics is wise or not for them. Public polls show that incumbent Senate Republicans are trailing in in five states, Arizona, Colorado, Iowa, Maine and North Carolina. Those senators all have to make a conclusion about whether um, the president's uh, approach is a good one or not. It's impossible for them to get out from under the president. We know that in general terms, and it's really impossible now. Nevertheless, they're not going to just sit there mute. So I think it'll be really interesting to watch those people running in those um, uh, swing House districts and then those Senate districts, both about their feelings about the president's tactics, but also about what you guys are talking about, which is the the sanctity of the of the election and see if any of those uh, members speak out. John, this is a segment that when when conceived, we thought it was going to be about Biden. And here we are most of the way through it and barely said his name. So let's try to say his name. So I'm going to say it. Joe Biden, Joseph Robinette Biden, Jr. (laughs) Joe Biden is running for president and is leading in all the polls and he does do various kinds of public appearances here and there or appearances which have him on on video and he has incredible support among democrats there's this amazing figure in in the i think it was in the times or the post this week it was about, nate Cohn. uh yeah it was nate Cohn from from the times but when you poll people who had supported elizabeth warren were they going to support biden all of them. There was not a single person who had supported Warren who was polled who said they would not support Biden. Um, and similarly, huge support uh, among former Sanders voters. He, he has locked up those Democrats, which, which Hillary Clinton never did. So where, what is the state of his campaign right now? Well, I think the state of his campaign is, um, uh, you know, in uh, 1896, William McKinley ran a front porch campaign because Republicans told him you can't go out and campaign, just stay at home and let the voters come to you. And so in some ways, Joe Biden is running a a front basement campaign. But that's because we're in the middle of a pandemic. So it seems natural. And it also fits nicely because President Trump is making Joe Biden's case better than Joe Biden is. But by which I mean that hope for a kind of normal return to things is the appetite being created by the president's behavior. And it's essentially what Biden's been pitching. He also happened to have wisely chosen the moment in Charlottesville where the president's behavior, which really predates Charlottesville as being, you know, he was the nation's lead birther for five years. Then as a candidate, he was accused both by the Speaker of the House and the Republican leader in the Senate of of either racism or or playing footsie with racists, and then had his um, uh, response to Charlottesville, which was not in keeping with either the his job or the uh, um, or the American tradition. So this is a long, this is a long pattern. But Biden launched his campaign around the idea of Charlottesville, which, which has some connection with the current moment and the president's um, view that we've seen played out in the polls. 
that he hasn't been able to respond to this moment uh, of racial reordering with any kind of competence. Um, so that helps that helps Biden in this kind of getting back to a more normal version of America. And then I think finally, he's not being baited into fights uh, either by anything he's I mean, he's having gaffes in the typical Biden way, but he's not being baited by the president. And there's Dave Weigel f- found an amazing fact, which was a, w- during the Clinton-Trump campaign, Regnery, the conservative uh, publisher, sold 12 books about Hillary Clinton. In uh, 2012, they had sold 13 books about Obama. This year, Regnery only has one about Biden. That, that was Biden, such a great detail from Weigel. Yeah, that Biden is less demonizing. And if you look at the latest Times poll, Trump's very unfavorable rating in the polls, about 50 percent. Yeah, that was roughly what it was, I think, in 2016. Biden's, though, is only 27 percent, which is much lower than than Hillary Clinton's. So he is harder to demonize in the moment. Um, and demonize is different than gaffes. Gaffes, you make fun of them. Demonize makes you think, oh, my gosh, electing this person will be a danger to the country. You know, it's interesting because Burisma was supposed to be all about demonizing, right? Like that was supposed to be the tactic. And yet it's sort of gone away. Can I just say, did you guys see that like 30 second video of Biden yesterday that was supposedly talking? I mean, he was talking about anti-compete clauses for fast food workers, but he so maybe deliberately, I don't know, he mangled the idea of the word woke and the whole idea of being woke. He just like said it wrong. And it's, it's great. Like, it's funny. It doesn't really make sense. But it's sort of, I, I don't know. I thought it was obviously the campaign decided to use it. And I thought they were right that it it's like out of touch in kind of exactly the right way. It's fine that he doesn't really get what that is or know how to say the word in a sentence properly. I think I've been struck by the absence of the well, I, I suppose there are still these whacks against the squad and against Ilhan Omar and AOC and yes. stuff, but it's much less it feels like that that even that isn't having a lot of currency. We see Tucker Carlson with these just disgusting attacks on Tammy Duckworth. Disgusting. And sure, he's doing them. It's on Fox. It is being seen by by millions of people on Fox, but it doesn't it feels like this is again, this is so out of line with where the country as a whole is, where people are really anxious because they have lost their jobs and there's a pandemic raging. And they have a president who doesn't seem to be doing anything and no one seems to have a plan like that. That seems to be where the country is. And and the the kind of conservative separate uh, universe, the the what is it? Epistemological closure of the conservative universe is just not working at this moment. Well, you just wonder how much people are going to really care about statues when they're all these actual human beings trying to keep breathing. And like, that's a really big problem. Remember, Slate Plus members and would-be members that we do a bonus segment on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts also do a bonus segment that just goes to Slate Plus members. And today's bonus segment is going to be about whether PPP recipients, those uh, paycheck protection program companies that got loans as bailouts as part of the Emergency Cares Act, whether they should be named and shamed if they are big, rich companies or organizations that are have a lot of resources already should they be shamed or not so go to slate.com slash plus to sign up to become a member of slate plus today and you'll really be helping slate out and you'll be helping us out and you'll be getting all this great bonus content this episode of the GapFest is sponsored by aura frames are you ready to win mother's day cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family 
Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame it was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. As we tape, we are waiting the Supreme Court releasing its final decisions of the term in Trump's, the cases involving Trump's tax returns. As we wait, we're going to talk about some of the decisions they made yesterday, the rulings they made yesterday, in particular uh, around the ability of religious organizations to get kinds of uh, liberty and freedom and and exemption might one, one might call it ability to discriminate that, that other organizations do not get. Um, when I was a, a high school student, my basketball coach would sometimes berate us as we were playing or at halftime and say, you couldn't beat the little sisters of the poor. He would, he would always use the little sisters of the poor as an example of how badly we were playing. We couldn't even beat some old nuns. And anyway, the point is that we definitely couldn't have beaten Little Sisters of the Poor. Little Sisters of the Poor apparently are great at everything. They won a huge case yesterday, Emily. Um, talk about Little Sisters of the Poor and also about the other big case that the Supreme Court decided around religious exemptions. Yeah. So the Little Sisters of the Poor case got lots of attention. So basically, you have Obamacare. Birth control is supposed to be part of regular preventative medicine. Everybody's supposed to get it. So then there are challenges from um, Hobby Lobby. People may remember this big company that didn't want to pay for birth control because of religious objections. Then you have the Obama administration passing a rule exempting churches and the Trump administration vastly expanding on that rule, exempting anyone who doesn't like the contraceptive mandate who has religious or moral objections. Any employer can be a for-profit corporation, can be a nonprofit, does not have to be a religious organization. They can all opt out. And the the question was, did the Trump administration have the authority to do that? And it was a seven to two majority saying, yes, um, some of the, the case, other aspects of it will go back to the lower courts for more proceedings. This is like the longest journey. Um, it's like just a case going on and on. I was actually more struck by the other ruling yesterday 
So here are the facts of this case. You have two teachers at Catholic schools saying that they lost their jobs. One of them had breast cancer and said that when she took a leave for treatment, she was fired. The other one, it's an age discrimination claim. And the Supreme Court said that because they their work included the teaching of religion, they could be fired. The schools did not have to respect the laws that protect people from being discriminated against um, on the basis of disability or age. And that's just kind of an amazing idea. So the court did this by expanding what's called the ministerial exception. In 2012, there was this unanimous ruling that if you're actually a minister, like a member of the clergy, the idea was, well, your religious organization could fire you for whatever reason it wanted because you don't want the government interfering in those decisions. But now we have this expanded to teachers, and it's, I don't know, what do you guys think about this idea? Like, if you're a Catholic school teacher and you go to get treatment for breast cancer and you get fired, you have no recourse. Well, and I think it, it's important to talk about what they said, which is that essentially any teacher, any employee who has some role in religious instruction is qualifies as a minister by that definition. Yes. And it sounds like the schools can, can really designate whoever they want. And it, and once you start there, it feels like you can also, uh, this could apply to camps. This could apply to nonprofit organizations. It's not just going to, any religious organization feels like it's going to very quickly say, well, these people are engaged in in ministerial work on our behalf, and therefore we have to be able to do whatever. We have to be able to fire them because they've gotten old and we can't have old people and are teaching people about our religion. I, it just, it, it feels really strange. And the piece that I didn't understand, Emily, and I was hoping you would clarify is, what if it's like the, the church decides, oh, it's because they're black or they're Latino or whatever. It's, it's a racial category and not a, not a, not age. I think, I think, I mean, age discrimination is a disgusting, vile form of discrimination. Also that when people think about discrimination, the idea that you, if you're a teacher at a Catholic school and the Catholic school decides, oh, you know, we don't want to have black teachers here. We can do that and we can get rid of them because they're black. Like that seems completely crazy, but is that now allowed? I'm not sure. I mean, there's still on the books this case called Bob Jones, um, an old case from the 1980s in which Bob Jones University barred interracial dating and the government took away its tax-exempt status. And the Supreme Court said that the government had the authority to do that. So, you know, you could imagine a future challenge in which that precedent butts up against this one. I mean, I don't think schools are going, well, I hope they're not going to go around explicitly saying they're firing people for racial reasons. Um, that's just, like, horrible to contemplate. But I'm also just struck by this idea that, like, religious schools should be able to fire people on the basis of disability or age. Like, there's just weird idea. So, Emily, is this an, an excessively rigorous reading of the wall between church and state or or does the or does the legal process have to make some determination about whether the reason for which people was fired has any connection to the actual practice of the faith it's the former it's not like oh catholics you know don't like people with breast cancer right it's not that there has to be some religious objection to the conduct it's the idea that you can't have the government interfere with the workings of a religious organization and that um, enforcing these anti-discrimination laws would be a form of government interference with the free exercise of the religious organization. I mean, it feels like the free free exercise is 
should apply to the work that is done in in a church in a in a in a house of worship but i don't see why free exercise applies to every single aspect where religion touches your life where education or a hospital or a camp or it it doesn't make sense to me because then you you end up with this you end up with with religious organizations having these vast territories of uh, like they're 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 almost like foreign uh, what is it foreign embassies where th- where the rules are totally different they're allowed to do what they want because of of this strange expansive reading of what free exercise means free exercise to me means like you can't the government can't tell you how to worship you can worship however you want and and but doesn't mean that you know how how your child goes to school like when they their athletic league all of that stuff should be subject to those same rules it feels yeah i mean i think that stretching of it it's also why it's not sitting well with me i there's a interesting um op-ed in the new york times today by michael mcconnell who's a conservative law professor at stanford and he was pointing out that the court has ruled in favor of the religious party in the last 12 cases about religion and he was making the argument that this is a move toward pluralism on the court's part And now I'm going to riff on it a little bit. It's basically as if there's a trade going on where the court, um, you know, earlier this term recognized the rights of LGBT people in this way that liberals celebrated, which we talked about. But now we're carving out these big exceptions. We're basically saying, well, those rights stop at the front door of any religious organization. We're going to let them handle discrimination um, and other aspects of life and of how their organizations work on their own. We're going to basically like not look inside what's happening there. And maybe this is like a larger trade and sort of, you know, implicit social bargain the court is making where that we're there essentially carving out exceptions for religious groups and treating them as a kind of protected minority of people. And that's a way of insulating some evangelicals, Catholics, Jews, Muslims, etc., from the kind of larger secular order. And then the question becomes like, well, is that the court's job? Is that a good thing for American life? Is that like all well and good because you're kind of letting some people lag in the kinds of, um, you know, sensitivity to discrimination that you're expecting of everyone else? Or should you just be like applying these rules even handedly and equally to everybody? I don't think it's an accident that it's Catholic schools that are uh, at issue here because uh, there is a sympathy in this court that I, a lot of the justices come out of the Catholic school system. And there's a, I think Thomas, uh, certainly Thomas Gorsuch and Kavanaugh are all products of the Catholic school system and others maybe as well. I got more concerned back in the Hobby Lobby era where the idea that a religious organization could include a private employer engaged in just private employment practices and the moral or religious beliefs of the employer could trump the basic facts of law. That felt to me much worse even than this idea of extending extending all these uh, extra exemptions to Catholic schools. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, one thing I've been wondering about this kind of a looming issue is that, um, you know, there are a lot of Catholic hospitals in the country and there are 
secular hospitals that have merged with Catholic hospitals. And then there are these questions about whether they're going to embrace the guidelines for Catholic hospitals that prevent not just abortion, but sometimes like uh, letting women have tubal ligation to end their fertility or um, long acting contraceptives may not be available. They're like, again, these kind of carve outs around religion. And if you have enough Catholic guideline dominated hospitals, you really change healthcare. Um, so that's another area that um, there may be future legal challenges. I, I want to just quickly go back to the Little Sisters of the Poor before we leave it, which is that it is uh, first of First, a question, which is, what if it was a organization of Jehovah's Witnesses? Could they put in their in their program like no blood transfusions? Like all all the all the people who work for us cannot get blood transfusions. We need a health insurance plan that doesn't cover blood transfusions because that's you know uh, contra to our religious principles, as I understand Jehovah's Witness religious principles. Is that okay? That's a good question. I mean, I think the answer is no, because this um, exception to the contraception mandate comes from the Department of Health and Human Services, not oh, from great. the religious organization itself. And then the other thing is just the monumental idiocy. These cases remind us, again, of the monumental stupidity of the American system where health care coverage is tied to employment, where your employer has some say in what kind of health coverage you get. I mean, there are all kinds of women who use hormonal contraception, not for contraception, for other reasons. It, it has other benefits, other health benefits. It's prescribed for other reasons. The idea that because their employer has made some moral decision about you know their sexual behavior, they should not be eligible for those benefits is just perverse at the highest order. What on earth? What other system in the world is like that? It's crazy that your employer, your employer's views should shape what kind of health care coverage you get. It's ludicrous. Yeah. And actually, that came up in one of the concurrences. Um, I can't remember if it was Alito or Gorsuch or Thomas. But, you know, one of the arguments from the dissent by Sotomayor and Ginsburg was this idea of like, well, you know, the government passed Obamacare saying they were mandating contraceptive coverage for everyone. And the conservatives said, no, no. What about all the women who don't work? That you, there's no mandate for contraceptive coverage if you don't have employer-based health care and you don't have Obamacare. So um, actually, like, no. So it was like, using the fact of employer-based health care as a reason to say, well, there isn't this universal coverage you say is so important. So we've been waiting for the decisions in the Trump tax cases, the two Trump uh, tax return cases, tax document cases. John had to step out for a minute. So it's just me and Emily. Emily, we have those decisions. They're both uh, uh, they're not um, strictly partisan. Uh, they are both seven to two decisions, I think you said. Yes. Um, so are we going to see Trump's tax returns before the election? Is New York District Attorney Cy Vance going to see Trump's tax returns before the elections? Is anyone going to see any tax documents of Trump's before the elections except his accountant? Um, I, believe it or not, don't know the answer because the court sent the both of these cases back to the lower courts for more procedures. Cy Vance, the district attorney in Manhattan, has a much better chance of getting these tax returns before the election than Congress. Uh, the court issued in the um, in Trump versus Vance a pretty resounding opinion that um, a state 
law enforcement official can subpoena documents from the president. Um, it's a decision that really like goes back to um, the Nixon case in which um, there was a federal subpoena for the Nixon tapes, famously. And this case says that um, the same kinds of rules apply in a state proceeding. But then the majority opinion in the last line sends the case back to the lower courts and There's a separate concurrence by Justice Kavanaugh in which he points out that there are all kinds of new issues um, that Trump's lawyers can now raise below that haven't been heard before. And so we have definitely not seen the last of this case. So Kavanaugh says the court today concludes unanimously that a president does not possess absolute immunity from a state criminal subpoena, which I guess means that even the dissent agreed with that premise. But Kavanaugh says the court also unanimously agrees that this case should be remanded to the district court, where the president may raise constitutional and legal objections to the subpoena as appropriate. So, you know, we're going to have another round of litigation, and we just don't quite know whether it's going to happen fast enough. We have the district court, we have the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, There could be a further challenge coming back to the Supreme Court. It's a short timetable by November. I think it's unlikely. So, Emily, what about the other case, the case that involves Congress, various committees of Congress seeking presidential tax documents uh, that they are not going to see, correct? I, I don't think this could happen fast enough. So here you have the same seven to two split. So the dissenting justices in both case are Justice Thomas and Justice Alito. Everyone else came up with a new balancing test. And I should add that Chief Justice John Roberts is the author of both of these opinions. And so Roberts is essentially saying the president is trying to hold us to a it's trying to get us to impose a really high standard for Congress subpoenaing his personal documents. We think that's going too far. We think that that would give the congressional subpoena power too short shrift. And so we're not going to do that. But we also like the idea from Congress that whenever it asserts a valid legislative purpose for this kind of subpoena, we have to go along with it. Because if you just let Congress decide, then the court says, well, they could ask for any personal papers. It could turn into harassment. They could have like motives that really have nothing to do with passing legislation. And I think, unfortunately for the House here, in the initial um, asks for these documents, they made it clear that they were interested in these documents in part because they just want to know what's in Trump's tax returns um, as a way of investigating him, as well as for, you know, future legislation that might in some way curb the power of the presidency. And so there's this key line where Robert says, like, we'd have to be blind not to see what all others can see and understand that the subpoenas do not represent a run-of-the-mill legislative effort, but rather a clash between rival branches of government over records of intense political interest for all involved. Given that, the court is coming up with its own new balancing test, and it seems fairly common sense as a balancing test. I also feel like it's one of these tests, like, you could really just decide these factors either way in a lot of hard cases. So first, the test says that courts should carefully assess whether the asserted legislative purpose warrants the significant step of involving the president and his papers. So, like, what does that mean? Then the court is supposed to make sure the subpoena is no broader than reasonably necessary. Third, court should be attentive to the nature of the evidence offered by Congress to establish that a subpoena actually advances a valid legislative purpose. 
is. That part's important because it means that Congress doesn't just get to say for itself what its legislative purpose is. And that part is also reminiscent, I think, of Robert's approach to these cases, the DACA case, the census case last year, in which Roberts was willing to kind of look under the hood of the executive branch and say, basically, like, we need to see some real valid justification here. So now he's not saying Congress doesn't have that justification, but he's telling the lower courts to go make sure. And then the last part of this four-pronged test is that courts should be careful to assess the burdens imposed on the president by a subpoena. So these are kind of obvious considerations, not a whole lot of guidance here, I would argue, about how the lower courts are supposed to balance this in this quite difficult particular case and going forward. But I think you see the court trying to make sure that Congress has some kind of subpoena power, but also make sure that the president maintains his separate sphere. So I don't know. I haven't read the dissents yet. I bet when I read the dissent in the case about the congressional subpoenas, Alito and Thomas are going to say, how the hell are the lower courts supposed to figure out what to do here? I I would say in defense of the majority opinion by Roberts that um, the court is clearly trying to look far ahead and not just think about President Trump and his unusual decision not to release his tax returns. The court is clearly trying to make sure that the facts of this case don't obscure the big separation of powers here. And the court also makes really clear it's never been in this position before, and it doesn't want to be in this position. So there's a lot of language early on, like, hey, normally y'all two branches work things out by yourselves over these subpoenas. You don't put us in the middle of it. We're going to try to work it out for you, but we'd really like it better if you could just keep doing that. And and while Rubbish doesn't say this explicitly, I think you can see here that the justices feel like there's a breakdown between Congress and the presidency, and they hope to see those relations restored. Hamilton returned this week on July 3rd, Disney Plus streamed or began streaming a filmed version of the famous musical. It was filmed back in 2016 before the presidential election and Disney plus decided to release it. Disney plus, and I guess the creators and owners of Hamilton, Lynn Manuel Miranda decided to release it during the pandemic as a streaming rather than wait for theatrical release because man, it seems like a good time for it. Uh, it was all the rage in my Twitter feed. At least you have heard us talk about Hamilton repeatedly before. You've heard other people talk about it. You might have seen it. You certainly know people who have seen it. And you know a ton about it. It was the this kind of Obama-era sensation, this idea of American story rewritten to dis- allow uh, people who weren't just the the dead white men to be depicted here. I don't know. I don't know what to say about it. Uh, you didn't we, feel differently about it? I oh, I felt, such a... I felt very differently about it. Yes. I felt well, extremely... That's we're gonna yeah, about. that's what we're going to talk about. That's what we're going to talk about. <laughs> of course. I mean, well, I, that was the question. Is it, what is it like to see it again and to see it again well, what did you, against what... the backdrop of tragedy and a broken political system and a nation hardly divided over race and a fight over history where a president can't even disavow the Confederate flag? What was it like? Well, I thought, watching it, that actually it wasn't telling a different story. Like, the actors are different. They're all these people of color on stage, and they're amazing performers and they bring music and dance to the stage that inflects the story with all these cultural 
very modern feeling resonances. You know, there's David Diggs, like, rapping and dropping the mic. And I totally enjoyed that. But the story is a story of the founders. And it's a different story than usual because it's centered on Alexander Hamilton rather than Washington or Jefferson. They are subsidiary characters and Hamilton's immigrant identity is emphasized. But there's like barely a reference to slavery in it. There's like a throwaway line about Sally Hemings, who, you know, had children with Thomas Jefferson and who Annette Gordon-Reed at Harvard has written this amazing history about. And it felt like racial divides at the time were being completely glossed over. And that actually was hard to take in this way that I don't remember being as aware of five years ago when it done... Well, I guess Obama was president, so it had felt it felt at that time like we'd overcome more of these divisions. But also, I kept thinking about the New York Times Magazine 1619 project and how that has changed how I see what is like dominant in our history and what is missing. I should say there are lots of historians who worked on this before, but culturally, at least for me, my awareness of like the deep ways in which race is totally central and slavery is totally central. Like, I think about that a lot. And so it was just massively absent. Yeah, well, I, I guess you have to figure, I think the problem or the challenge with trying to, under, to put a finger on this is that there's the art and then there's the history. And because you can say it's absent, but if, um, you know, from another way of looking at it, it is everywhere in the in the musical so that's the- it's implicit rather than explicit right yeah, like, and maybe exactly. that's part of its art right. you can make an argument for that but it felt deeply unradical to me in a sense and yes. maybe that's unfair yeah it's deeply unradical and that's why i continue to love it i think as a deeply unradical person i i mean there is this way in which a lot of i mean one of the questions i was asking myself is is am i watching this musical in the context of a trump administration which is just disavowed the kind of great ideas of America and has put forward this this kind of highly racist, white nationalist, anti-immigrant uh, uh, kind of uh, homogenous vision of American life? Or am I watching it in the context of the Black Lives Matter, George Floyd protests, which have, uh, which have brought a kind of incredible lens. I would put the 1619 project and the kind of thing, incredible lens on the way in which history has been mistold and misused. And I guess I'm such a conservative person by nature that what I don't like the idea that we throw out the Hamilton musical because it is a conservative musical or because it is, it, it, it overlooks slavery, doesn't acknowledge Hercules Mulligan was a slave owner. Alexander Hamilton, you know, did uh, law work to help people sell and buy slaves. Hamilton was not much of an immigrant activist. But I kind of, I believe in myth-making. I, I think one of the things that I find so troubling about the, the, the kind of anti-statue movement, which, which is really important. And I think like everything that any Confederate should come down, take them all down. But in general, I like statues because I like myth. And I think society depends on a certain kind of myth and re and you recast the myth and you retell the myth and you rebuild the myth with your each age, but that myth is important and myth is a lie. And 
the Hamilton is filled with lies. It's filled with dishonesty. It's filled with, you know, misstatements of what the absolute truth is. But it's supposed to instill a feeling, an emotion in people about what America is and what America can be. And of course, it like it grotesquely, you know, misleads about slavery, the impact of slavery. But it does it in you know, and that, and it should be critiqued for that. And I love the critiques, but it shouldn't not be, but like that, that art that inspires and fills people with kind of a sense of that we're part of a collective project around, uh, an idea of America is a great project and it's a worthy project. And it's better than, than one, which says there can be no collective project, which that we have together. And so that, that I still cling to, but I'm a conservative. So I would, wouldn't I? I mean, it just is. Can you imagine that play if there was an enslaved person as a character on stage? Like, it's interesting that in order to perpetuate the myth and like and I th- and and succeed in the feelings of patriotism, I think it could work with it. I think it could work with a character as an enslaved person. If Hercules Mulligan had like his slave who helped him in the spy network. Yeah, I don't. Uh... I I think it would do it would it could work. Uh, I mean, you would imagine. It, I mean, maybe it would be better in some ways. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think more interestingly is. I mean, it's not. Uh, you David, you said it distorted slavery. Does it distort slavery? Maybe this is the same thing, or just not. It it kind of deals with it. Um, you know, now and again. I mean, the leading the first uh, all black battalion and um, and freeing slaves are. I mean, there are. Uh, discussions of slavery in throughout and again there's that rather important scene with thomas jefferson um so it's not like it's totally absent but is it really um distort slavery or just doesn't talk about it enough yeah it elides it but that's a distortion like it doesn't it overlooks the fact that the gr- the greatest you know crime the united yeah, states yeah. ever committed is not really discussed right one's one's of omission one's of commission though Right. There are a lot of actual people, enslaved people, who are not on stage with them while we're romanticizing them. Obviously. I mean, Emily, do you think that, I mean, I think John, John, because he's a historian of the presidency, probably, I'm sure John knows the Bob Dylan line, what even the president of the United States sometimes has to stand naked. So John knows that president, you know, presidents are regular, fallible people we all know that they are in no sense myths and giants but john has also written about the these people as as giants i believe in them as giant like that that the the impact they have on the world is outsized do you think that that myth making of the sort that hamilton engages in is a is a valuable process for society or not oh i totally think it's important i mean i think the beauty of hamilton is that sometimes patriotism is just much less available to liberals, right? Like, we're less likely to have flags on our house. Like, there are all these symbols that um, liberals, I think, shy away from. And I think that's a mistake. Like, you want to claim patriotism. And I think Hamilton was, like, a great way into celebrating that history and learning about it and thinking about it through the lens of all these amazing actors, like John was saying before, it is really important. It's just that it also is important to wrestle with it um, mm-hmm. and to see the absences and like decide how heavily they're going to weigh on one's um, enjoyment. I, I, yeah, actually, wait, sorry, John, I would say something to, to two quick points. One is it is really interesting to me how much new criticism turned up this time 
in 2020 because of what's happened with the 1619 Project or Black Lives Matter, how much people are able to see this thing, which was so uh, overanalyzed in 2016 in new ways and to offer new takes on it in 2020, which hadn't occurred to us in 2016 or hadn't occurred to me. That's number one. Number two is I so want to align myself with your point about liberals and patriotism. I, I saw the Harriet Tubman movie uh, this year. I don't know if you guys saw it. Not a great movie at all. But man, what a fantastic story. What a story. Like, what is there there anybody in American life who is more deserving of of being put on statues and currencies and celebrated and than Harriet Tubman? I cannot think of such a person. You know, it seems to me that the big tension here is that the, at, the, at its heart, the, the art of Hamilton is that in America no matter your station, no matter where your birth, you can become famous. You can become worthy of a statue. And obviously, that's the story of Alexander Hamilton, and that's the story of the artists who created the Hamilton musical in part. I mean, that 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 people of descendancy that once would have been enslaved could nevertheless make this culturally changing thing. That's the through line. The problem is that the big blockage there is that obviously at Hamilton's time, there were people uh, for whom no matter how great the American dream was, it was completely shut off, walled off and cemented closed to them. And so you can't have a singing story of American opportunity exist at the same time you have this big fact that it was not available and that's the that seems to me that the big clash that's not resolved um and we should be aware that it's not very available right now either right. and that we've right like yeah. we've lost yeah. some of that elasticity and possibility in the last um 20 to 30 years and that is like a huge problem and a huge loss right. and right and so that although, also felt right uh, although this goes back to both of your points about the power of myth so and one of donald trump's powers is that he has said to a lot of people you know these myths and norms that everybody maintains they're all baloney and they're only so that they can stay in power and they, they're not real and so don't buy the fact that i don't um kowtow to those myths and norms is no big deal because the people who benefited from them really didn't pay attention to them either and they just used them to enrich themselves which is the downside of destroying all myths uh, or norms but the benefit of the myth is that even in its imperfection it can elevate people and cause people who are don't have the right instincts at heart to nevertheless do the right thing so you need those one of the things that struck me about harry truman and integrating the um the armed forces is he per privately in his letters uh, was basically, if not a straight up racist, uh, expressed lots of racist sentiment in his letters. And yet he was he felt propelled and compelled to integrate the military because it felt it was out of, not in keeping with the values and goals of America. And so to the extent that those are elevated and made and, and kept in the forefront, even as we fall short of them, there is that way in which myth keeps pulling right. us in the right direction um, and without even it, if it's we false. Don't. Right, even right. if it's false. Yes. Even if it's false. Even if it's yeah. false. Right. Even yeah. if it's yeah. false. Yeah. And if you focus too yeah. much on its falseness, then you think, oh, well, it's meaningless as a myth, and therefore we don't need to go pulling in that direction. Well, I think that Patrick Keefe has this interesting podcast series, Wind of Change, which is about the question of, just came out, it's on Spotify. Patrick Keefe, of course, is the author of the a fantastic book about the troubles in Northern, Northern Ireland, Say Nothing, which won all the awards last year. But he has a podcast series that is about this song, Wind of Change, recorded by a German 
heavy metal band, the Scorpions, band I used to listen to a lot. I'm not ashamed to say. Uh, and and whether this song was in fact written or somehow influenced by the CIA, because its wind of change became this very powerful cultural uh, totem behind the Iron Curtain, or in in the as the Iron Curtain fell and as as communism fell, young people across Eastern Europe and in Russia found some kind of meaning in the song. And and America is and and Patrick goes into the history of American cultural propaganda and how often we use our cultural might to spread ideas and to shape what happens in other countries and how young people in other countries start to see America. And it's a really important thing to do. And it's because we're good. We're great propagandists. We're great creators of culture and evangelizing a certain set of ideals. And Hamilton, I think, is in the great spirit of that. So I want to close on sort of the aesthetic experience of watching Hamilton. I will say I was sort of bored in the second half. I fell asleep. The show kind of drags in the second half. I thought the first half was stupendously great. In the second half, I was like, this is really long. I think, I think this could be sped up a little bit. But I'm, maybe I'm a bad person. Now we've moved from cultural criticism to theater criticism. Well, that's fine. Usually we go the other way. Everything's about theater criticism. You know what struck me about reminded? I mean, obviously, the story of Aaron Burr is all about naked ambition that is unmoored from, you know, fundamental and deep values. Is that naming for John Bolton to name his book in the room where it happened is basically saying because Aaron Burr just wants to be in the room. It's not that I want to be in the room to advocate for this or that. I just want to be in the room, which was you know, the thing that frightened those founders the most. And so for Bolton to name his book after that um, is a uh, is a bit of a self-own, um, which occurred to me only when I was watching um, Leslie Odom's amazing performance of that. He really came across gorgeously in the film. Let us go to Cocktail Chatter when you are in the room where someone's making you a drink. Emily Bazelon, what will you chatter about with your bartender? I have a light and a serious chatter. My lighter chatter is a recommendation of a novel I read last week called Sea Wife by Amity Gage, which came out, I think, this spring, and which really succeeded in pulling me in, which is tough right now. I can't read anything the least bit avant-garde or abstract. I can only read stories because I'm having so much trouble concentrating, and this book really intrigued me. It's about a family that goes off to sea, um, taking their marital troubles and their interesting children with them. So um, I just really liked it and it stuck with me. I've been thinking about particularly the marriage in it and um, Amity Gage's ideas about how people overcome trials and tribulations from their youth, perhaps by overcoming later tragedies as well. Um, so anyway, it's called Sea Wife by Amity Gage. I recommend it. And my more serious chatter is about, um, I think, a kind of first-of-its-kind report that came out this week from the district attorney's office in Brooklyn. This is an office I've done a lot of reporting on for my book. And they opened up their files from the Conviction Integrity Unit in Brooklyn, which has decided and, and exonerated 29 people in Brooklyn whose convictions were wrongful. So this comes from the prosecutors as opposed to defense lawyers um, appealing in court. And these people collectively spent more than 400 years in prison um, for crimes they did not commit. 
And it's really like an interrogation of the office's past practices, both prosecutors and also working with the police that led to these, you know, tragic cases in which the wrong person went down for a violent crime. It's just going to be such a useful document for thinking through what goes wrong. And it reminded me of the reporting I did for my book, because so much of it is about tunnel vision and confirmation bias. The idea that, like, once you have a suspect, you start cutting corners and, you know, using suggestive ID procedures or, like, really just sort of nudging the case towards um, condemning this particular person and kind of sort of shaping the evidence that way, or not disclosing evidence that might contradict your foregone conclusion. This report will be out this week, and if you're interested in what goes wrong leading to wrongful convictions, it's an amazing resource. John Dickerson, what is your chatter? Uh, My chatter is um, uh, two definitions. One is um, the Mandela effect, which I knew about roughly, but was reminded to me by two... um, Two, two readers of my book who um, correctly identified an error in the book, which is that I refer to the Monopoly Man uh, as having a monocle. And the Monopoly Man does not have a monocle. It's the Planters Peanuts Man. Mr. Peanut has a yeah, monocle, Mr. Right. Yeah, Mr. Peanut, who has been discontinued. Uh, long may rest. Um, but um, uh, J.P. Morgan was the model for the Monopoly Man and... So I mentioned him in the context of his meeting with Teddy Roosevelt. Can, we, I, can I pause for a second? Yeah. What is it? What What did you use a monocle for? If you had him, what? How did you use it? I believe that it was if you were nearsighted like me. Well, I'm both near and far. But if you can't read and you just need to read a little bit, you put it over your eye and read the little bit that you have to read, and then you drop it. It's like the glasses. But like, the idea that you would only use one eye just seems weird, right? Like, I can't see very well at all out of one of my eyes, and the other one I can see out of, but I still try to use both my eyes. Yeah. No, I'm probably wrong about but it would be... Um, no, I think you must be correct. What else could you do with it? The um, uh, So, I don't know. I mean, um, it, but that's the way I use the, the glasses that I carry on the back of my iPhone, which are for both eyes, but it's, you know, for like emergency short-term um, reading, although then it raises the question, what kinds of emergency short-term reading were they doing, you know, back at the turn of the century or during the last century? I don't know. Maybe we will have a historian of the monocle weigh in and uh, help us see more clearly. But um, anyway, the Mandela effect is um, was named after... Um, well, the idea that Nelson Mandela w- had died earlier than he did. So people believe that he died in prison, but in fact, he didn't die in prison at all. And that this misunderstanding and, and rewriting of contemporary history is a thing that we all do. And so apparently thinking that the Monopoly man has a monocle is not just my mistake. It's apparently a typical example of this phenomenon. So there I made that common mistake. But I was, I'd forgotten the origin of the term. Then now my other term that I really like a lot is um, something called Zugzwang, which Hmm. is in chess. A player is in uh, Zugzwang when it's their turn and any possible move that they make will worsen their position. But because Mm. it's their turn, they have to go. They have to go. And this, I wish I'd known. Can you skip in chess? You can't. Can you do a pass? I don't think you can. I don't think you can. But this, I wish I'd known about this term when I wrote the book, because that's the original conception of of Harry Truman's The Buck Stops Here. It's not that you're responsible for everything, but that the nature of the job is that 
you have you are given two options, both of which will worsen your position and you have to move. And that if you understand the job that way, you have a little bit more context for the kinds of decisions presidents make. But that was originally the way he where the term came from. And then it morphed over time. But anyway, regardless of my book, Zugzwang feels like a, a posture we are often in. Um, and so now you have a new word for um, when you feel like you are in Zugzwang. My chatter is about Alexander Vindman. Alexander Vindman, you may remember, is the lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army who testified in the House impeachment hearings to President Trump's intense and grotesque meddling in the Ukraine matters. Vindman is a public servant in the most noble sense of that term. He has served in the U.S. Army for more than 20 years. He's an immigrant. He has been selfless. He loves his country. He's a patriot. And he was up for promotion to full colonel. And the U.S. Army decided he deserved his promotion to full colonel. His promotion was going forward. And when word came from the White House that the White House did not want him to be promoted, a kind of uh, a kind of interference in U.S. Army uh, personnel matters that is unheard of. It's unprecedented. And Vindman was a victim of a in that case and then in much other in his life of bullying and intimidation and a vendetta from the president and the White House. He was uh, berated in conservative media on Fox News and smeared. And it is hard to think of someone who has been as ill-treated as Alexander Vindman has been. The gap between what should happen to someone with who has served his country so selflessly and so well and what is actually happening is vast. And Vindman this week announced through his lawyer that he is resigning from the U.S. Army. The U.S. Army is losing this person who has done it does such good great hard honest work for it and is giving up it is disgusting so when people say oh trump supports the military or trump is strong i do not understand what they mean because what he is doing is undermining the men and women who have volunteered for service and have worked so hard and have believed in a system and the system that trump is destroying for his own personal uh, vendetta, his psychopathic, selfish, vicious self-service of the president. I want to live in a country where you can count on soldiers to serve the Constitution, where the best people are drawn to government service and where truth-telling and honesty are respected and rewarded and where you have a loyalty to the nation, not the president. And it is absolutely unsettling and disturbing that I do not live in that country. And so I... Alexander Vindman, I hope you get a fantastic, great job serving the country in some other way. And I'm sorry as a citizen that we've done you so wrong. Listeners, you have continued, as always, to send us wonderful listener chatters. This week, I want to call out a chatter from Emmy Rald at, at Rald Emmy. And she tweeted them to us, tweeted this chatter to us at, at Slate Gabfest, where I hope you will tweet your chatter to us. And her submission for Cocktail Chatter is Landscape of Fear, What a Mass of Rotting Reindeer Carcasses Taught Scientists. And it's about in a gruesome episode where 323 reindeer were killed by lightning, a lightning strike in a remote Norwegian plateau. And their bodies were left for nature to take its course. And scientists filmed what happened. And what they saw was this amazing efflorescence of, uh, of, the natural world where all kinds of creatures were drawn to it, 
where there's different kinds of flora and fauna that developed that these carcasses served as a, a incredible buffet and then uh, and then compost and and service to the land and and reading this article actually came out that in many countries it's a practice to actually remove carcasses remove animal carcasses but animal carcasses have this in the way that a dead tree has this huge value it has this incredible organic power in it that all these years of growth in it and these these reindeer carcasses cause this place to blossom and flourish and and wildlife to live there and so it's a it's a case for allowing allowing corpses to lay where they are i myself want my corpse to be thrown out in the woods to be gnawed on and to become part of a cycle of nature and for my bones one day to be discovered by some some person walking through the woods who will wonder why is there why is there a human femur here that's what i would like um and so that's what's happened to these reindeer and it's it's a really interesting story about their study if you enjoy the GabFest, please subscribe to the show. You'll get new episodes the second they are published. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director. June Thomas is managing producer. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. The Paycheck Protection Program was a, passed as part of the CARES Act, one of the emergency relief bills in uh, that came up in Congress after the pandemic, and it provided hundreds of billions of dollars to small businesses in the form of a loan that you could take if you were a business which had 500 or fewer employees, and it would allow you to fund your payroll for your employees for about eight weeks and some other expenses as well. And the, it was literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars have been dispensed in the form of these loans. And these loans, in fact, end up basically being, uh, you don't have to pay them back if you uh, maintain your payroll. You don't fire your employees un- under certain conditions. The data about what organizations have received those paycheck protection loans has come out, and it shows that private equity firms received it. It shows that incredibly fancy private schools, including Sidwell Friends, a fancy private school, which John attended. By the way, John is not joining us for this segment because he had to run. So I'm not going to impugn Sidwell Friends in John's absence. There were companies run by members of Congress. There were companies that were obviously prospering that received these Paycheck Protection Program loans. And now that the data has been public, some of these companies are being shamed publicly for having accepted these loans. So the question is, should they be shamed for having taken these loans. Emily, thoughts? I mean, I'm okay with the shaming because I think that some of these wealthy institutions should not be taking this money. On the other hand, if it's available to them and they're doing with it what the government asked them to do, maybe this shaming is misplaced. Like maybe it's just, um, I don't know. It's hard to like feel sorry for these institutions and saying we're not being fair to them. Uh, But I don't know. I mean, the other argument is like, look, we just want this money going out the door. The economy is in so much trouble right now. We should not be worrying about the details very much. I have a feeling you're going to argue that side, right? GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Step into the world of power, loyalty 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.